0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Joined today in the studio by Simon Thompson. How are you doing, Simon? I'm well, John. Better than last week. I'm glad to hear it. It sounded nasty. Well, you're very sympathetic from memory. I am sympathetic, generally. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about some of your, um, some of your uh, writings this week, some of your many writings... Uh, despite your bad neck Uh, despite the bad neck i've actually written up about 15 companies this week john okay so uh, we'll come on to that shortly also megan boxall how you doing megan
1: very well thanks john
0: excellent and you've written quite a lot this week
1: i have not 15 companies worth though
0: that's quite a few yeah some important stories, Some which we stories, will discuss, yes. but in the tech sector in particular, yeah. which I think is uh, it has political ramifications as well, which I'm which sure we will get on to. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And Julia Forshaw, how are you doing, Julia?
2: Good, thanks, John. Excellent. The
0: stars of a line this week, so we actually have the person who's written the cover feature here in the studio. So we're going to talk about that. It's about IPOs. That's right. Um, which which are interesting, uh, often uh an opportunity to make some money as we uh, as we discover but also an opportunity to lose some money
2: yeah it can really go either way
0: it can go either way and we're gonna and what you've done is try and work out how you can avoid going the wrong way
2: yeah certain factors to look for that could signify that it might go well instead of badly
0: okay well okay we'll come on to that very shortly uh shall we start with the the, the news uh this week let's start with you megan uh imagination technology
1: mm, yeah finally I've, they've had an offer
0: yeah, finally. I mean, I, I I took the liberty of printing out the share price oh, charts. Very organised. Um, got a tie un- on. Unusually, <laughs> you have got to dress up for the listeners. Um, so yeah, Imagination Technologies is one of the UK's remaining few remaining you know big tech companies yeah um and it's being bought by a chinese company
1: yeah well potentially that's the uh that that would be ideal for the shareholders at the moment
0: so how far are we down the road with this this takeover um
1: it's a it's an official offer which has been accepted by the directors um but they weren't really going to reject it because they put themselves up for sale in in june um it was a pretty generous offer and from what we sort of understand at the moment is, it may well have to be scrutinised by the government. We're not sure yet.
0: This is what I can't get my head around. Why?
1: The argument is that the company, the well, it's a it's a venture capital firm. It's backed by a Chinese company, mm-hmm. and it which sl- a
0: state-owned Chinese company as a well. State-owned
1: Chinese company, which, and so it's called Canyon Bridge. And about two weeks ago, it went to it was blocked from buying a very similar company in the u s based on state security issues mm-hmm. and you can kind of see the argument for the u s because the tech business is enormous in in america there is are, there are so much riding on the tech industry that you can sort of see where the argument 's there for blocking the the chinese backed venture capital firm from buying a a, a very large um, tech firm. Because they because that deal was blocked in the US, um, there are members of parliament, members of the shadow cabinet, there are members of the public who are saying that our government should do the same thing and assess whether or not. This deal is a matter of public, of, um, of national of interest. National interest and, uh, and state security.
0: I find that rather difficult to believe um, because Imagination Technologies, the problems it's having are mainly because it, it really was very reliant upon one customer. Yeah. That customer was Apple, yeah. who also had a big stake, if I remember rightly, for, they did, for some yeah. time. They, do they still have that stake? Yeah, yeah,
1: they still have that stake. It's not worth quite as much as it used to be. No,
0: and, and obviously they don't care how much it's worth. It, it, w- it was kind of a strategic either. stake for a yeah. supplier of a certain chip, graphics yeah. chip that they needed, um, but they don't really care. No. Um, so uh, the share price has, I mean, you say it's a generous offer, but the share price is significantly below where it was yeah. four or five, well, the, years ago. The
1: reason I think it's a generous offer is because 50% of, well, roughly 50% of Imagination's revenues come from Apple. And from as soon as people start buying the iPhone 8 and the iPhone ten. those sales are going to completely plummet Mm. and it's probably going to move back into a net debt position Um, and then it's got its banking covenants to worry about and so there's really not an awful lot of imagination to like apart from the core technology, which... It's meant to be fantastic. I mean, it's been part of the iPhones for the last ten years. It probably is, but very, not irreplaceable.
0: But clearly. but clearly
1: not irreplaceable, and also clearly not good enough. For while the share price has been completely hammered, for another big tech company to come and buy it up, I mean, you'd have thought.
0: That well, that, there was a, there was a second party potentially. There wasn't was,
1: there? yeah, uh, but we don't know who that was. And they pulled and out. And they pulled out, yeah. Um, too much confusion on on Wednesday morning. But yeah, so, it, yes, yes, yeah. I saw you were running around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but it wasn't Canyon Bridge that pulled out. Um, it was yeah this other this other company, but. If the technology was good enough, why did Samsung not come and make, make an offer? Why did another mobile phone provider or, like, a Google or an Amazon, people who are looking at um, uh, virtual reality, if the graphics are that good in these chips, then why were they not made an offer for someone like that, rather than a company which... all What Canyon Bridge do is sweep up the tech companies that no one else really wants and put a load of money into them.
0: Yeah, and, make, and they make chips very cheaply, I assume. Yeah. For, for Perhaps even for domestic uh, Chinese Handset makers or whatever it yeah, might be. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, it is interesting as well. I mean, in the, in the political context, because obviously, if, uh, a couple of years back now, we we saw ARM fall to a Japanese buyer, SoftBank. Yeah. So, so that, you know, there wasn't a lot of objections to that deal at the time.
1: No, and because one of the reasons for that was because SoftBank was all about like growing the UK business and investing in the infrastructure in the UK. But since that's happened, there's been a lot more backlash to us allowing one of our last big tech companies to go. Now we've got a Veva going as well. I mean, they're all just falling by the wayside.
0: I mean, you know, the reason I printed off these, these share price charts is because I know this company. I've known it, you know, for a long time. It's been around, yeah, since well before the dot-com boom. Um, and it's been a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it. not, I mean, it's not, been a, a strategically important supplier. There have been questions over over what it does for a long, long yeah. time. Aviva similarly. I mean, it does a good, you know, an interesting thing: CAD design for oil and gas and, and shipbuilding. But it's been a roller coaster ride. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, they both have been. And in imagination's case, I definitely would agree that it's it's time for it to go. It's not a massive loss, I don't think. To the UK tech sector, because it hasn't been run very well. I mean, to rely fifty percent of your revenues on one customer is crazy, and and anyone would know that that's just not a good way to run a business. So I wouldn't think that. I don't think that this is a massive loss. There, we've got so many tech companies, but if it becomes like common for all of our tech companies to be disappearing off to Asia, that's not great for the growth in the UK tech sector.
0: But is, isn't that the nature of of uh, of kind of British capitalism? You know, British the British approach to the way we. Allow our markets to, to operate is that we, we are open to to foreign capital we are open to yeah. uh to, to foreign takeovers we, 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 it's a kind of neutral thing and it, and I think there was a great quote from uh for, from someone involved in in one of these deals saying basically it's a matter for the for, for the for the company yeah. it's a financial decision yeah
1: oh yeah absolutely, and that is completely fair enough um but if it if it becomes sort of normal, if our tech companies aren't growing enough, if you look at the US, the economy that's being cre- created by the tech companies, you've got Google and Apple, which are phenom- phenomenal companies, and then you've got Europe saying, "Oh, they have too much of a domination in the market." Well, no one's competing with them because. All that's happening is they're being bought into these massive companies.
0: Indeed, but you don't create industries by protecting uh, suppliers who yeah. are perhaps not worth protecting.
1: Well, yeah, in this case, uh, in Imagination's case, I would definitely say that yeah, it's not it's not really worth worth hanging on to it.
0: Indeed, and in the case of Arm, I mean, you know, that's still in Cambridge and it still yeah. has this big kind of, what would you call it, an ecosystem of companies yeah. around it. You know, it still is an important part of the, the tech yeah. economy in the UK and foreign ownership does, not, does nothing to change that.
1: No, no, that is true. But it isn't our company, which is
0: ours, belongs to the shareholders.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah who are now Japanese shareholders. But,
0: but look at any company on the market, and you know it will have on its shareholder base very significant numbers of overseas investors.
1: Definitely an argument.
3: It's a good to one. I like, I like it. <laughs> Just about to add that if we're quite happy for our utilities to be owned by overseas. Um, investors stroke countries um, and we're reliant on capital from them for basically our energy needs, then why should we have an issue with imagination technologies being owned by the Chinese? Well,
0: indeed. I mean, I I think there there are some objections to the way that British utilities are owned, and certainly around the water sector, which we cover in this week's Sector Focus. Um, you know, I think there is a, a, a political issue there with, with the way uh, profits from utilities flow overseas, and train companies, for example, both of these mm. being the subject of discussion at the recent <laughs> Labour Party conference. Um, however, we want to build a new nuclear power station, we need the foreign capital.
1: Yeah, so that's one of the arguments with the imagination thing as well. So there's been China's putting money into a nuclear power station in Cumbria also this week, and that's all kind of coming into the argument that we need to need to protect our our British growth from uh, from Chinese.
0: Or we just need their money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we wouldn't need our, need their money if we allowed our tech companies to grow in the way that Apple and Amazon and Google have done.
0: Yes, but they can grow themselves. That's for them to. To, to work out how to do it. It's not for the government to determine yeah. how the direction of companies grow. Yeah. But anyway, we're getting into <laughs> philosophical realms, which, which I don't think we have time to do justice yeah. to on this podcast. Julia, you've written quite a lot of results this week. Pisa Custons in the news section.
2: Yes, that's right.
0: I've always been scared. I, I, I like this company, but I've, I've always felt it's been in a bit of a, a tricky spot um, and things haven't gotten any easier this week.
2: Cost inflation has been a really a difficult one for them and especially since this is... Uh, has outstripped wage growth. And so management were warning that these factors kind of in conjunction with a broader economic uncertainty are causing a lot of their consumers to shop more cautiously. And so and the washing and bathing products that they've launched over the period, they've noticed that consumers have been quite aware of the price point on them and they haven't really maybe done particularly as well as they had hoped.
0: Yeah, I mean, this feels like uh, the kind of consumer squeeze we saw, you know, sort of 2008, 2009, where the own branded suppliers started to pick up a lot of share because people were becoming much, much more price conscious.
2: Yeah, as you know, as wages aren't keeping up with this cost inflation, people are going to say, maybe I won't bring buy the brand name anymore. Maybe I'll go for the, the own brand of wherever it is that they're shopping instead. So this is managed to hurt PZ Cousins over the time. Yeah, I
0: mean, the, the argument, the argument that, that the likes of PZ Cousins would have had, who, and they make things like Imperial Leather and mm. uh, Original Sauce, I think, is one That's of right. theirs, which I like. Um, their argument was, you know, people are much more circumspect about what they put on their body rather than, sort of, you know, generic own-brand household cleaning products, for example, which someone like McBride makes, makes a lot of. Um, but that may, may not be the case then anymore. The branded product is not necessarily going to win.
2: Yeah, no, it seems to be slipping into the the poor side of the cycle where people are maybe not picking the branded products anymore.
0: I think I think this is a bit of a lead indicator for a for a, a consumer squeeze. I mean, talking of branded products, Unilever, for example, you know maybe they're they're seeing that that, that actually in countries like the UK where you are seeing a bit of a squeeze on the branded products, the growth is going to be elsewhere. They've bought someone this week in a, in quite an interesting deal.
2: Yes, they have. They're looking to increase their stake in North Asia, so they've bought this company called Carver Korea. And it was previously owned by um, Goldman Sachs and Bain Capital. And so it's kind of have a private equity injection of um, some money. But um, yeah, it's the fastest growing skincare company in South Korea, according to Unilever anyway. But yeah, it's uh, the South Korean uh, skincare market has been a massive market at the time. It's uh, one of the fastest growing in the world right now. And so Unilever have clearly spotted an opportunity and want to pick up on that.
0: Quite expensive shares still, though, aren't they? They are rather expensive. Yes, Indeed. that's why we've got
2: it on a hold at the moment. It's they're they're making acquisitions. They've also recently bought um, the UK company Puka Herbs, and so what? Probably, is pr- they bought what? It's a uh, they specialize in herbal teas, and as people as consumers are moving to be a bit more health conscious, they're they're picking herbal teas maybe instead of their coffees. Yeah, so they recently also bought that as well, and so yeah, Unilever is good for for spotting these kind of emerging trends and really. Picking companies that are already quite well established in that space.
0: Obviously, not too worried about the political tensions on the uh, the Korean Peninsula either. If they're, uh, if they're spending <laughs> all that money to, to move in there. Okay, so let's let's quickly uh, run through some of the results and, uh, and tip updates we've had this week. Uh, there's a couple that you've written, uh, Julia. That uh, both good tips. One sell, one buy. Let's start with the buy. Compass. That was a, that's that's been a great performer. That's some, right. So some interesting news there that might worry shareholders, but we're not so worried.
2: Yeah, they've had some management changes at the moment. So their uh, long-standing chief executive Richard Cousins has uh, announced that he will step down from the end of March next year, and he's been at the at the helm of the company for 11 years now. So shareholders have come to to trust him quite uh, quite heavily, and the share price has done extremely well over the time. It started off at around. 240p when he took over, and uh, last I checked, it was trading um, just over 1500. So shareholders have been clearly quite pleased with him over that time. But we're
0: not worried; we still like the shares despite the, the change of management.
2: Yeah, we do. I mean, the the fellow who's taking over, Dominic Black- Blakemore, he has been chief financial officer at the company for four years already, and so you know knows the ins and outs of what's going on. He knows so the he business. should be good, capable hands for it to go into. So there's certainly well. The, the former chief executive has done quite well. This shouldn't be really cause for concern, I don't think.
0: No, it's still in a, a secular secular trend of uh, of outsourced food service, which uh, which we like. Uh, mr Butler talking of food and drinks. Uh, we sold this and and, we, and it was right. Uh, yeah, and they have had an update. What's what's happening here?
2: The uh, the English summer was um, unfortunately as rainy as it gets. That reputation it was quite, for it was <laughs>
0: quite dismal,
2: and so which was sending fewer people to the pubs. they were buying less pints. I
0: know. I still wish is the just overall. <laughs>
2: Well, apparently not as many other people did. And so awful, that was uh, bad news from Mitchells and Butler's. I,
0: I spent all my money at Adnam's in Southwold. Um, literally all of my money. <laughs> <laughs> so, any recommendations? Any recommendations from Southwold? Uh, I would say that uh, they're distilling. Operation is going from strength to strength and their gins are absolutely fantastic. Mm, okay. You went out that way, didn't you, Megan?
1: Yeah, well Albra, well, Albra Aubra, Aubra thought mess, but a little bit further. Close enough, Addams. all
0: the pubs in Aubra Adams. They're
1: all Adams, well. yeah. <laughs> and it's great. And they I really like all of their like pale ale's and the whole range now. They're not just relying on that dark stuff which I'm not that keen on.
0: No, no. Ghost ship's delicious. Yeah, that's a huge beer. A huge, huge beer. Yeah, I didn't realise how big it was. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's, it's, it's everywhere.
1: Do they have pubs as well or do they just make beer?
0: They've got pubs. Pubs, hotels, mm-hmm. in Southport and Audra. Yeah. they are great. They are great. But as I said, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm broke. You after mix that your gin. You mix
1: your Adams <laughs> gin with fever tree tonic. It's a great drink.
0: I actually made my own gin at Adams. Yeah. What, did you
1: go around the factory?
0: We went. We had a look at the factory. Ooh, I'd yeah. like to do that. I've never done. Yeah, that. I was kind of regressing my career choices when I, was, <laughs> when I met the head to still. <laughs> 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 but I love this. I love this. Um, let's quickly uh, turn to the results section, as I said. Uh, wh- what do we have in there? But Megan, anything you've covered this week that really stood out?
1: Uh, Cambian was um, surprisingly good. Cambian is the care home's operator, which had an absolute disaster in 2016 and sold its, um, its children's services, so they're the care homes for, for children um, side of the business which was the bit that was doing really well um, we well I had concerns that with just the adult division left they'd be not an awful lot left to invest in but actually they've come through the period of transition pretty well they're growing not badly um,
0: so these, these are care homes basically are they
1: yeah yeah, spe- specialist homes and schools as well. What well, it used to be schools for, for people with learning difficulties and, mm. and elderly people.
0: Well, I can't see, I mean, care homes has been an interesting sector. I mean, Simon, when you were back in, uh, back in the days of your uh, company editorship, I mean, the care home sector struggled badly. So Things like Southern Cross that, uh, that really ran into trouble.
3: The two reasons for that. One, most of them were highly indebted, over-leveraged. Um, secondly, they were susceptible to local authorities' uh, funding. Um, so they were basically squeezed on both fronts. Um, however, the niche ones like CareTech, which is specialist services, um, have done fantastically well. Um and the independents, some of those are actually doing well as well. Um a, a relative owns five care homes now, um and she is making a fortune. Yeah, I think I think don't say that too
0: loudly because if Jeremy Corbyn's listening <laughs> those five care homes may not be making quite so much money.
3: Well, she's making a fortune however I, I'm told that the quality of care uh, represents decent value for what she's actually offering To um, uh, we, we, We've been uh, actually next
0: week's cover feature is about long term care and, and and how you actually fund it. It's a big thing. It's a big objective yeah, of many, of many well, investors. The market
1: is unfortunately growing like massively. It's uh, well, The population's it's, getting older. The population's getting older and yeah living longer We've got people who are going to be in care homes for 10 years, which would have been unheard of 20 years ago. Mm. But um, so, yeah, we need to have more space to look after those people. And, yeah, if you've got the right business model, like you say, CareTech's just got it absolutely right. And it's not... Taking on too much debt, which is what Cambion's problem was. But well, it seems
0: that it's got net cash. Looking at this. Well,
1: now it does because it sold. Um, ah, right. Cause it sold like half of its business, so <laughs> it's, it's going to be reinvesting there. Yeah, 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 fine. Um, but yeah, before um, before it sold its um, children's care division, it had it had a serious amount of debt, and it breached its banking governance, which was why it had so many issues last year. um but it seems to be on on better grounds now, and the results were pretty good.
0: Rosie hey, Rose and I have looked at this, and you know there, there is obviously political um, interest in this sector as well, um, because I mean it, it was a, it was part of a, the, the election pledges of the Tory, and, it, and I think it was one of the pledges, the, the care cost pledge, that, that really mm. backfired on them. However, Rosie and I looked into this, you know, and there is this idea that that care homes basically charge the earth and, 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 and are rampantly profiteering. But actually, they cost a lot of money to run.
1: Mm. Yeah, a the, huge amount of money to run. They have to, because you need the insurance. You need to pay your staff. And mm. that's one of the things that's hurting them a lot at the moment. The government wrote, increased the amount that people have to be paid if they're working overnight in a care home. And because that cost has risen. And so you have to have carers <laughs> overnight. So.
0: so so we're not massively bullish on this. Because oh, no, there's... we're not
1: bu- bullish in any way. But, I mean, it's before I, we were kind of like, this company is not going to exist in five years. But now... It, Probably is, it's it seems to be
2: back on track.
0: Okay, Julia, what have you uh, what have you covered this week that uh, that piqued your interest?
2: Deep Eurasia was oh, um,
0: interesting.
2: I was you were going gonna, to say that. I was going to say that. I love this story. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, their first set of results as a listed company too, and so. So D-
0: DP is, is basically Domino's Pizza.
2: That's right. Yes, and so and the Eurasia bit is they're mainly in Turkey and Russia at the moment. But they, it was, a, it was a good set of results. They're looking to go quite quickly. When they hit the market, they were raising money primarily to expand the number of stores that they can operate in Russia. And so far, they're doing that. They've opened stores over the period. Profits are up, and they're looking to continue to expand.
0: And they've got plenty of, plenty of money to do that? Or, uh, or are they going to be coming back to shareholders to, uh, um, to fund that growth?
2: For the moment, it should be good. I mean, their franchise model is fairly... Um, it's not too expensive to run for them if they're having franchise money coming in. And so they should be good for the meantime, but, I mean, you never know in the future. if They they said that uh, they're going to focus on Russia and Turkey for now, but they could expand into more markets in Eastern Europe in the future. And so.
0: they're talking about 2,500 stores.
2: Yeah, they... um It's a big number. That is a big number, especially since they're just over the uh, 600 threshold now. So they've got... But that's,
0: if, still, that's still quite big.
2: That is still quite a lot of stores, especially... In uh, in Eastern Europe, but so if if their plans go go ahead and go as as they're expecting, then there could be quite a lot of room for growth.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 the third Domino's Pizza incarnation that we've seen on the market. So we've obviously had Domino's Pizza in Ireland, which has done exceptionally well. That's right. Um, And and
2: and the much smaller uh, existence of DP Poland. DP
0: Poland, yeah. I went on a fact-finding mission for DP Poland. What did you find? Not a lot of D.P.'s out. <laughs> How was pizza? I didn't have one, I couldn't find it. Is
2: <laughs> Is Polish Domino's any different from British Domino's? I don't know, I didn't find any.
0: <laughs> no, my, my wife has family in Poland, so we, uh, and this was just as D.P. Poland was going to market, so I went out there and sort of... Uh, I asked my wife's cousin, you, do you like pizza? Do you get any? And
3: uh, I, I think he just had no idea what I was talking about. I, I looked at it a few years ago, and if you'd actually invested in it, you'd have done tremendously well in the last two or three years. Really? Uh, three, four hundred percent um, share price gain. Um, but I didn't get it, because I, I've been to Poland, and um, it, the wages that people have... Uh, yes, I know the demographic is a lot younger than Britain, you know, the post-Second World War and et cetera, but um, the income... And the prices charged in Britain compared with Poland and the type of margins you're making, I didn't get the operational gearing in the business. And, you know, I, I, the last I looked, it's, it's doing a lot better than it was, but I still don't get it, to be honest.
0: No, I, I, didn't, I didn't really get it. I mean, it, Poland, Warsaw, which is where I think they, they really began their, their operation. I mean, you yeah, know, there's plenty of, of food options out there. There is, there is po- Polish fast food, which is really nice. It's zappy basically <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a basically a bit of a, a French bread cut in half oh. stale has to be stale with like <laughs> you're toma- not selling <laughs> <laughs> it with, with onions cheese and tomato sauce on it put it in the oven for a little bit that
1: it's, sounds like a pizza
0: it is a pizza it's a French bread pizza and it's amazing and they cost nothing and this goes back to what you're saying Simon. Poland you know it's cheap to eat out there
3: we, we went to Krakow okay this was seven eight years ago and we were eating out for, for next to nothing um and we weren't on a budget. We were trying to spend money, but it was actually quite difficult. Um, and <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> your best option might have been DP Polo,
3: <laughs> if I could have found one. <laughs> yeah. um, and but but that's that's the point that you know you're looking at the margins that you can make from an individual outlet and the cash profits you can make and then roll out the franchise and. I, I didn't get it, but clearly there's something there. Otherwise, the share price wouldn't have done so well in the last few years. And you would so expect
0: the same to be true of, of uh, these Eurasian markets that DP Eurasia is going into, Low, much lower cost in terms of the products, the, the, the price they can get for it. Um, but the same sort of you know broader pressures on on, on input costs that everyone else ha- has. So,
1: is there not an aspect of DP Poland just riding the share price? of Domino's Pizza
0: I don't don't think so I think they are treated very much as separate businesses I mean I don't think you look at so I mean Domino's Pizza obviously has a very large US master franchise and I I can't you know when we've looked at the prospects for Domino's UK I don't ever remember thinking about looking at the the US business
3: it's very different it's just different market yeah Yeah, totally different markets
0: and obviously Domino's UK has then tried to expand into Europe itself through Germany and you know it's finding that they're very different markets to go into but it is very interesting
3: the spread of dominoes. So is it worth having a slice of it? Oh, uh, Here we go. It's
0: good to have you back, Simon.
2: <laughs> We're saying hold at the moment, so wait and see. So not
0: worth a slice. All <laughs> right, Simon, Simon, okay. tell, tell, us, tell us what is worth a slice
3: this um, week. I, I've had a cracking week. Um, I produced on Monday um, a column called Exploiting um, Hidden Value. And uh, that's online only, I stress, but um, there's six companies, four and a half thousand words of analysis and some special situations there to uh, to look over. But for the magazine column this week, uh, plain Sailing, um, I looked at four companies, one of which, uh, GYG, which stands for Global Yachting Group, floated on the market two months ago. Um, I had the board of directors on the phone for about an hour and a half before it actually floated, going through the business. Admission document was you know, 150 pages, and I, I went through it with a fine tooth comb, decided, Zeus Capital was the, um, the brokerage behind this, decided that, that the flotation price of a pound, a target price of pound fifty, was realistic. Results this week, maiden results, have actually upgraded that target price to near £1.70. What, so, does it, what does it do? Um, it is the global leader in new builds and refits super yacht painting. That's it. It paints Pace super yachts. <laughs> and it, it, does, it does about 167 refits a year, but each one costs, wait for it, 200,000 euros. But if you've got a super yacht worth 100, 200 million euros, what's 200,000 euros? It's nothing. Some of, the, some of these super yachts charter for three, four 400,000 euros a week. Um, once again I'm ruining my career choice <laughs> as, as I hear this. <laughs> <laughs> but not not surprisingly the only people that can actually afford to uh, to own these super yachts are billionaires um, and there's a correlation between the business that GYG gets and the number of billionaires in the uh, in the world which and is which is growing it's grown well between 1995 and 2015 uh, it grew fivefold to over 1800 billionaires Um, Industry experts expect it to actually grow to two and a half thousand billionaires within three years. Um, So it's a strong, strong trend there. And this company is doing incredibly well. It's got an order pipeline of 385 million euros worth of work. Um, It's got a historical conversion rate of 32 percent of that. Its order book is going going great guns. Remy Millot, the chief executive, told me that they've got so many requests for... um, for work, they've had to take on two extra staff in the recent weeks, which gives you some indication of the pipeline that's actually building um, behind those those official figures. Um, profits were up um, strongly in the first half. Um, Zeus expects 38, 39% profit growth for the full year. Um, shares are trading roughly 12 times earnings estimates for the full year. Um, but the other thing this company is actually doing is taking costs out of the business. It was private equity-owned Previously, they Lonsdale Partners owned 20% of their of the equity still. Um, as a result of this pipeline and um, lower cost base, um, profits are going to absolutely ratchet up next year, too. Um, th- this stock is roughly 10.5 times next year's earnings. It's got big fat dividend yield, too, because mm. it's a very asset like business. They enter into relationships with um, boatyards they, and higher out space. Um, have seasonal workers paint these super yachts um, so it 's an asset like business with high conversion um, of cash flow into operating profits, and um, it supports a really chunky dividend, um, as I said you know stock price has gone from a pound to about one pound thirty five forty pence this week um, i 've increased my target price to one pound seventy, so another twenty percent or so upside. Um, that would equate to about 15 times next year's earnings estimates and a prospective dividend yield at that target price of uh, 3.8%. Um, I like it a lot.
0: I mean, this is quite interesting. And I think, We'll come back to you, Simon, because I think, I think you know, uh, GYG, as you said, you know, is, is a recently new entrant to the market. <clears throat> you, you poured over its prospectus, made the decision to buy. And, and obviously that chimes very, very nicely with what, what you've been looking at this week uh, in the cover feature. That's right. So, so I mean, I, I guess we we've now got this. We can we can ask Simon as an investor, having looked at the perspective, which is one of the first things you encourage people to do. Um, but yeah, talk, talk us through. You know, what did you find from you know how you actually approached the the idea of investing in a newly listed business? What what are the kind of key things that that you came away with?
2: I mean, when investors can see these new companies coming to market, it's often easy to get overly keen and think this is a great new opportunity. It'll be the next big thing, but the the features looking at sort of what factors you should be aware of and what might be indicative of how the company's run and how it might perform in the future. And so um, first of all I guess the first thing people have to look at is do you understand what the company does? Do you know what kind of market share they have? Do they how is their product or their service different from others that are on the market or Well,
0: well I mean I no, kinda of like this one. What do you know what the company does? Paints boats. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I, I, what, super yacht
2: sounds
3: much more fancy <laughs>
2: okay so no problems there
3: that's good yeah Take that so one off.
2: do you understand what kind of market share they have
3: 17 percent.
2: all right of the and global
3: market of the global market chunky
2: mm. and how do they do things differently compared to other super yacht painters
3: but they've got <laughs> they, they've they've got scale it's a fragmented business and um They've got the capacity now to actually go around snapping up smaller companies to bring it into the fold. Um, As I said, you know, 17% is the biggest um, company in the field. And I'd rather have the market leader than a tiddler up against the market leader that's got better economies of scale. Um, So the size here is important because the bigger the size, the bigger the financial stability of a company, the more serious boatyard owners are going to take you when you say, hey, I've got a super yacht coming in worth 400 million euros, I'm going to paint it. You get
0: Boy and Rodney along. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that, that's, the, that's another tick. <laughs> okay. Other factors?
2: Uh, the next thing I guess you should look at is when they're coming to market, how much money are they looking to raise and what are they planning to do with this money?
3: GLG, let's, let's ask the question. Um, Lonsdale had a big stake um they sold down the stake um but equally you've got to look at who was buying it and the type of fund managers and their track records so i don't want schmucks buying the equity off a private equity firm um just because you know they're attracted by the pr um, that that's important the track record of the fund manager actually buying into the floats um, it's also the track record of the broker floating the business too um, and what, what about the PE house what about the, the original back I mean, they, they retained 19% so they got skin in the game
0: but I guess if you look at you know, the, the,
3: I think you explore
0: in the future and I, and I, I helped Emma put a little bit together on, on, on PE backed floatations they have a reputation for kind of dumping stuff on the market
2: yeah they kind of went through the 90s phase of where they'd overly indebt a company and then just kind of stick it back on the market
0: and there are some horror stories um so, so I guess if you if you are looking at the backer, you probably want to want to see a, a previous PE owner that A has continued skin in the game and B has a track record of actually offering value to the market.
3: Uh, no, absolutely. But also I want to see the shareholders buying the stake off the private equity owner to drive the price down to a level that gives upside for external investors as soon as it actually lists. And that's what they did here they actually drove the price down from the Pathfinder prospectus to what was actually the flotation price quite significantly. So those new shareholders coming on board said, um, you know, we're willing to invest at this price, not the price that you want to take the business at. So they actually did the negotiating for us. So when I went in, I knew that the price being floated was actually an exceptional price. <laughs>
0: There's another example you mentioned in the feature of that happening recently, which was BIFA, where the, where the mm-hmm. price got driven down. And it's actually been a reasonable ipo since then yeah
2: and it's not really necessarily the end of the world if that happens i guess the sort of initial reaction is to think why is it being driven down so much what were they underestimating before that now is sort of coming to light but But it it kind of actually can make it more reasonably priced
0: but it, it kind of does
3: make you think there might be something wrong with the business if that
0: negotiation has happened and and they're not
3: getting the price they want which is why i had the directors on the telephone for an hour and a half um And went through question after question after question with them.
0: Lucky you, and everyone gets the opportunity to do that. I guess that's what we're here for, I suppose.
3: Um, Well, we, we can take vast amounts of information and analyse it and put it into articles of 2,000 words, which are easily read, but having done the legwork first. Okay.
0: There's another factor that reminds me which I think is management, which I think... I was going to say, mentioned.
2: Simon's point there brings us uh, into the next factor really quite nicely, which is what do you think of the management team and what is their history? Have they tried to float a business in the past and has it worked? Has it not worked? Do, do you
0: look... At, I, mean, I guess we want to look at uh, their the track record with the business they're floating, whether they, they themselves are, are, are invested.
2: Yeah, are they the founders as well? And how much... And as you say, are they invested now and are they? how much are they going to keep at the end too? Which cannot always be... A bad sign if they are planning to sell down. I mean, an example would, that we talk about um, in one of the case studies is Fever Tree, where the the two founders who started the business have sold down their sh- they hol- their shareholding now is about half of what it was when they came to the market. S-
0: still pretty chunky. I think it was about twelve and six percent for the two founders that they, they still As it is have now.
2: That's right. So they still have a significant amount now, but they said that there's just been such overwhelming demand for these shares that they've kind of been forced to ha- to sell them down to meet. In demand from institutional investors
0: i mean that, that share price has risen at ex- an extraordinary lick since it since it came to market i mean, you know these guys but are they thinking oh we've lessened value on the table this <laughs> is i do wonder you know that you do want to get a fair price for your business and the, the fever tree founders they didn't get the price that the shares are worth today i mean it's I, I just think it's quite quite interesting that you know management can be prepared and founders can be prepared to let stuff go Perhaps a, a price they know is below its intrinsic
3: value but but also in the case of fevertree, the business has evolved quite dramatically since it floated, and um, do, do you think the fact that it floated has helped it it grow in the way that it has oh yeah the, the, the pr that it 's had you know every time you pick up your newspaper it 's fevertree has done this, fevertree has done that, or you're talking about specialist gins <laughs> um, you know you 're getting a lot of PR. Um, that ordinarily you wouldn't get if it wasn't listed on the stock market um but but also it's hit the markets just at the right time with this this gin um craze where you've got gin clubs now another relative gin club where
0: where do i sign up
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will i will get you i will get you details a cousin of my wife wendy um pays 50 pounds a month to be a member of one of these gin clubs You're she, that I'm told it's very good, but um What
2: do you do at a gin club?
3: Oh no, you don't do anything. They, uh, they just send, send you a, some gin. They send you a different <laughs> bottle of gin every every
2: month. Every month? Fifty pounds a month for gin, that's quite a lot mm-hmm. of gin.
3: Um Well, I think this relative well, let's see no more. <laughs> <laughs> um No no so so basically fever tree hit the market just as this gin craze was was taking off and um um, and also healthy living as well. You know, there's. gin. No, I mean <laughs> beer. Beer. <laughs> they do have light tonic. Oh uh, yeah, no, that's what I have. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, son. No, I mean healthy living as the, sh- the sugar um, backlash against sweets and sweetie things. So, uh, you know, if you want a healthy tonic drink, then Fever Tree may be it. Um, well, at least the price certainly justifies being a better. Tonic. It's ten times the price of standard Tesco
0: tonic, but can you taste the difference? Is John? the argument, I isn't think it? You can. I'm not sure. I think you. I can. think you can. I feel like I you can. You yeah. Can yeah. I don't want yeah. to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very expensive. I mean, it is interesting in itself. The timing issue, because that's something you explore in the future as well. This idea of an IPO cycle.
2: That's right. Like if um, certain companies start coming to the market. That have done particularly well. some of their competitors that are privately owned companies might think, well, if that company did really well, maybe I should think of going public. And but, I I mean, it's nice to think that way, but it doesn't always work out quite so nicely.
0: Indeed. So, so basically, what what you kind of suggest is that you you run the risk of of the the issues that come later in the cycle in similar types of businesses and industries it can be of perhaps deteriorating quality. And because the cycle is taking off, you're possibly paying more for them as well. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, an interesting example of, of this. I mean, yeah, one company that came very much later than, than another is uh, Assos and Boohoo. So, Assos, which is in the magazine this week, um, and Boohoo, which you've written about. Boohoo cu- came much later. And, you know, I think there was some skepticism around, around another online retailer, but it's done very well.
2: Oh, it's done, yeah, exceptionally well. And, I mean, I feel. I don't know about ASOS, but I feel like Boohoo. One of the the kind of uh, outstanding factors is that they really know their their audience quite well. They have a specific age range that they target. They they ship quickly, and their styles are appealing to the people that are want they're wanting to buy from them. So
0: I don't get it. I'm not the audience.
1: <laughs> they both so make it so easy to shop. It's, Do they? But it, well, I don't really like Boohoo, but ASOS is just. Everyone shops mesos. Every female. Think... Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: It's just so so much easier. Free deliveries, free returns. But yeah, then Boohoo is like a slightly different demographic. Bit younger,
2: bit cheaper. So, they've got their own little niche.
0: And they've bought some companies recently, haven't they? I
2: was going to say, one of the other things that they did really well is that they've just gone on a, a bit of an acquisition spree. So, I mean,
0: this is what they said they were going to do, though. And I think they they this, did. This in is the another... perspective,
2: this was why they were raising money.
0: And this is, you know, this is something else you have to look out for. I would say, when buying IP, you know, very often you're not going to get in on day one because you're not one of the institution investors. So, you're look, you will be looking to, to buy into these IPO stories at a point after the IPO date. You have
1: done well to have done it after the IPO. Yes. You had a well, shocking first year. Yeah. And so did ASOS.
0: Asos had a shocking, well, it, it shocking blew up, years, didn't yeah. it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you remember that? the bonds through it all for. Oh yeah, it absolutely. Blew up its warehouse. Melted there. <laughs> but it recovered. That such is the strength of the trend. Um, but yeah, so, so you, you know you'll be you'll be looking at these things perhaps later as a private investor. And, and one thing perhaps you should look at is whether the promises the company's made at IPO or in, in their prospectus they have actually fulfilled.
2: Mm-hmm. And I guess
0: in Boohoo's case that that has been the case.
2: Yeah, and. In- the acquisitions, I mean, the company 21.3 20, Clothing, which is more commonly known as Pretty Little Thing, that was probably oh, one it. of their biggest competitors. It
3: well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so, and yeah, they just, they bought one of their biggest competitors and they've now bought the intellectual property rights for Nasty Gal, another one of their competitors. And so they're, they've been quite good about spotting shares in the market and buying them up. Good for them. Thank you very
0: much, Jude. It was, it was, it's a really good feature. Lots, lots to uh, lots to get to grips with. There, lots of good case studies uh, that show us how you know the companies that have done it well, companies that have done it badly. The things mm-hmm. you should be looking out for.
2: The yes, um, so, bad and ugly.
0: Simon, so, mean, let's let's quickly head back to uh, to your column before we uh, before we sign off because I know we've
3: uh, rudely interrupted you there while you were in mid-flow. Oh no, no, no. That was that was great. Um, um, on the theme of. Um IPOs that sometimes don't work out, but in the end could work out. Um, one of the companies I spoke to this week was Mind and Machines. It's a registry of um, top-level domains. So they own domains like .london, .miami, .bion, um, a big one in China, .vip. It's got a great significance, that name in China. And um, they're in talks, A investment bank in the U.S. is doing a strategic review, which could actually lead to an offer for the company. Um, people were disappointed this week when they had results that there wasn't any news on that. Um, I had the finance director and uh, boss on the phone and um, they basically assured me something, you know, will happen by the end of the year. Either an offer will be, be made or um, they'll actually walk away from it. Bearing in mind there are in ongoing discussions at the moment, you've got to be able to value this business. Um, and in the third quarter, they achieved six million dollars worth of sales. But the key key thing uh, to note is that the CEO said this will be their first year of profitability, and it's not just a slight bit of profitability; it's major. Uh, FinCap, the analyst there, expects pre-tax profits of roughly three point seven million dollars. Um, it's actually hit an inflection point for the first time ever its uh, renewal billings for these domains that it owns actually exceeds its operating costs. Um, and when you actually hit that point, your incremental sales thereafter, a higher percentage of those sales are actually dropping down to the bottom line. And um, going through the numbers with the um, the analyst on this, um, the company's got roughly, or will have roughly one and a half million domains under management at the end of this year. Um, he values each one, at approximately £51 per domain, based on a renewal fee per domain of $8 domain. And it's like an annuity income stream this is generating. So basically 1.5 million domains times by $8 renewal fees, $12 million worth of income. And as I said, it's actually covered its fixed costs. So a high percentage of that is actually dropping down to the bottom line. And he basically values the stock... Over 15 pence compared with the 11 pence share price at the moment. Um, I go f- further than, th- than that. A-, a Chinese private equity group took a stake last year at 13 pence. Um, that's actually the biggest Chinese equity group in the country. Um, I actually value it at 18. Right plenty of
0: upside there. Masses there. of upside. Excellent. Uh, one more company I, I, that I was intrigued about. I'd not heard of it before. Cambridge Cognition. And this, this kind of taps into the trend we were talking about earlier around uh, the, the ageing population and, and uh, you know the, 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 uh, the proliferation of, of care homes. This, this is kind of related to that.
3: Yeah, they, they do cognitive assessments to, to improve the understanding, diagnosis and treatment of neurological and psychological diseases. Um, a great example of this is... Um, Some technology that they've um, adapted, which um, for people with Parkinson's disease or um, certain other neurological diseases, um, first shows itself in your voice. So they've actually created software that can actually pick up these disorders. Um, And that's still in development, um, but expect news on that soon. Um, And... Given the problems that we're actually seeing, you know, the growth in people with Alzheimer's now, anything that can actually pick up diseases of that kind at an early stage are well worth well worth having. But it's
0: uh, it's the kind of thing as well that takes costs out of the whole the whole system, yeah, and that's ca- course exactly course. what we're it's looking for.
1: Treating Alzheimer's and and all the neurological conditions—they're just caught so late because symptoms show years after they've. Um, years after the illness has taken hold and mm, by mm. then that's why all these Alzheimer's dogs are failing because they're just t- given too late so yeah if you can diagnose years early that's fantastic and lots of potential. And I
3: know, totally agree with that. One of my friends has got Parkinson's disease and this, this um, software would actually pick it up as well this voice software that they're actually developing Um I had a great conversation with the finance director and uh, chief executive on this. I put the readers in earlier this year, uh, back in April. I mean, the stock's done fantastically well since then. So it was a case of, is there more upside to this? And I've advised running profits on it. Um, Is it making money? Oh, yes, no, it is making money. Again, it's one of these highly operational and geared businesses. They've actually grown the business into the technology that they've got so actually monetizing it commercializing it uh, commercializing it so w- when they hit that inflection point of actually turning profitable um, a higher percentage of incremental revenues drop straight down to the bottom line so this year um, profits will quadruple to half a million pounds next year they're forecast to double to a million million pounds or thereabouts or well, not a huge increase in revenues. Um, because the revenue assumptions are quite conservative. Um, but the point is, once you've actually covered your fixed cost base and you've actually developed the technology and you're actually out doing the deals to actually sell it, um, they're big clients are big pharma in clinical trials. That's, that's what they do. Um, but when you actually hit that, that point where you actually turn profitable with a business with such um, valuable IP... Um, the margins you can make thereafter are high. I mean, their gross margin is 90%, John. Mm.
0: No, it's quite interesting. I mean, you're already making money in, you know, what is, what is a growth area mm. without a shadow of a doubt? Tech enabled healthcare. It's quite
1: unusual for a small tech yeah. healthcare company to be making I like the making this
0: money. one. Tech enabled healthcare. We have talked about this before. I think yeah, we'll talk about it again. Yeah,
1: it's a very interesting topic.
0: Okay, I, th- I think we've run up against the clock, unfortunately. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, for uh, your contributions today. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Megan. Uh, plenty more in the magazine. It's been an- another incredibly busy week on the results front. I'm uh, going to probably start calming down uh, from here on out. Uh, thank goodness. Um, but we will be busy until Christmas sorting out uh, features and such the like. Um, Alex Newman's other sock screen... Alex Newman's put together the stock screen this week. High quality large caps, one of our better performing screens. Uh, in fact, most of them perform very well, but this has been this this one is a a very, very consistent performer. Uh, lots of the personal finance and funds section, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Uh, all the usual tips and comments. And uh yeah, that's it. Thank you all again. Uh, thank you for listening. How to profit from Stock Market Newcomers IPO. It's a, it's a nice cover this week. Very very bright and bold. Uh thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week. See you later.